Do you know what's been most unexpected to me about this podcast? Tell me, Chris. Who knew we had such an impact on affairs that any uninterested party would rightfully assume we're out of our control? Are you talking about Rupert Murdoch listening to our podcast? Apparently, Rupert Murdoch listens to our podcast. So exhibit number one to my thesis, of course, was New York DA Alvin Bragg's waiting to drop the Trump indictment until you'd returned from vacation. I think that that evidence at this point has been very well documented. Now, exhibit two, to your point, last week we covered all the reasons why Fox News was boxed in and hadn't settled. And then, boom, first day of the trial, they settle. I got to confess, I didn't expect we'd have that kind of impact. Well, you know, I do recall questioning why Rupert Murdoch had not settled this case. So apparently he does listen. And it was a smart move on his part, even if it was a disappointing move for those of us who are trying to strengthen democracy. Okay, we're going to talk about that. Uh, Fox News is topic number one. So save your comments for two minutes, please. Because we've not only been getting many mailbag questions, or we're going to answer another one today, but we've also been getting some of the kindest comments like this one from Kristen Jay about last week's podcast. She wrote, just finished listening this morning. And once again, I really enjoyed it. You can tell the two of you talk about what you will cover and have an organization in mind. Each one is succinct with no BS, although it could be argued that my reading a compliment to us is BS, but let's just go with it. <laughs> you manage to cover more in your 20 to 25 minutes than other podcasts take 60 to cover. So anyhow, let's minimize the BS, but that was not BS. That was really nice and a greatly appreciated comment. And it is how we approach it. So I enjoyed that one. Well, and Kristen's discovered the quick way to get your uh, mailbag question up on the podcast. Don't ask a question, just praise the podcast. When you're this needy, compliments like that go a long way. I think that makes three. I think your mom, my mom, truthfully sent us both text messages praising the podcast and now Kristen. So I think we're up to three. Maybe we've top ticked it now with Kristen. We'll, we'll try <laughs> to keep going. So if you want to send questions and I guess compliments for the mailbag, here's how. Quick reminder, if you're listening via Political Wire, you know how to contact Tegan via the website or reply to one of his new Politics Extra Substack newsletters. If you're listening to this via Chris Reback's newsletter, email me any questions by simply replying to any day's newsletter. Now let's get on with the business that we had started touching on. So I guess you have heard, I was just going to alert you to it if you weren't aware, that as the New York Times reported, Fox News and Dominion signed a $787.5 million settlement agreement among the largest defamation settlements in history. Now, we also got a comment from a reader, Flying Tiger, after the last podcast on this point. So we had talked about the not settling, and Flying Tiger wrote to us, regarding not settling in the Dominion case, I think the long pole in the tent for Fox is not wanting to accede to any requirement Dominion would have laid down, requiring Fox to admit to lying and to wrongdoing multiple times live on their air. Also add that Fox has to worry not only about Dominion, but also Smartmatic waiting in the wings as well, should they lose. Compensatory and punitive damages from both cases could seriously jeopardize Fox 
financially. So Flying Tiger was absolutely right, in my opinion, about Fox not wanting to accede to any requirement around admitting to lying on air. And in fact, they don't have to do that. And so likely won't as part of the settlement. So two questions, you kind of preempted a little bit. The first one, how did you feel about the settlement taken? And two, is this financial penalty enough to change their business model? Great questions, both of them. In terms of what I felt, we are recording this two days after the Fox settlement was announced. Yesterday, with all of the commentary about what a tragic decision this is for democracy and the fact that we had Fox News backed into a corner, so many of their misdeeds over the years had come out in emails and in text messages. We had executives admitting that their network was not news, essentially, and that they were simply trying to cater to an audience and give the audience what they wanted. After all of that, I was beginning to think, you know, $787 million, that's a lot of money and that's got to be worth something. So I sat down and I was going to write a piece about how, look, this is a win and that this is a big deal for all of us who worried about Fox News's impact on our politics. And I sat down to write and I got to tell you, Chris, I couldn't do it because I do think it's terribly disappointing. It's one of these things where we had Fox News backed into a corner. All of these things that those of us who pay a lot of attention to the news, we knew this about Fox News. We knew that they were parroting and lies. We knew that they were willingly doing this. We knew that it was not journalism. Nonetheless, I don't think that this financial penalty makes much sense in terms of changing their business model. I think they will continue doing what they're doing. If all reports are accurate, and certainly the last 24 hours is accurate, Fox News has not apologized on air. That was not part of the settlement, apparently. And instead, it's a big financial penalty, but really, in the scheme of things, not that big. Just to be clear, you are arguing, and I agree, I found it very, very disappointing. I wanted to see the fruitful give and take on the stand between attorneys and Fox executives and on-air talent around the discrepancies between the private conversations and the public conversations. I think we all looked forward to that very informative exchange that would have occurred. But you understand why Dominion did it. So you're separating out, I'm assuming, Dominion's interests, which they are a company that has shareholders, or I think they're private equity owned, you mentioned to me the other day. And you're separating out their need to do what is, in a sense, right for them versus everyone else's need to do what's right for democracy. At the end of the day, it was a cost-benefit decision that both Dominion and Fox News decided that there was a number on which they could settle. And you know, I'm sure both sides wish they got a little bit more, but you know, at the end of the day, that was where the market met. They settled. The disappointing thing, I think, for many of us is that we relied on lawyers and judges and courts to solve what is, in effect, a political problem and a corrosive problem that we have with Fox News parroting misinformation and, and really undermining democracy in this country. And so it was terribly disappointing that the court decision was not what we had hoped, but perhaps we were really hoping for something that we shouldn't. Ultimately, political decisions are not ever solved in the courts. Minor disputes are solved in the courts, but big picture political decisions are really ultimately solved at the polls and through our governing, through democracy, through laws that are passed. So perhaps you know our expectations were out of whack, but nonetheless, it was disappointing. And when I tried to write the case for why this was a good thing, I, I had a hard time doing it. I end up thinking that we had a real opportunity here to shine a light on Fox News's issues and what they were actually doing to our democracy, and we lost that. 
Even worse, several readers have made the point to me in emails over the last couple of days that Fox News viewers aren't really getting an accurate picture of what actually even happened. So it's not clear if you get most of your news from Fox News, whether you even understand what happened in this case or not. And that's probably a valid point as well. So anyway, disappointing in terms of what the outcome was. You know, I understand certainly why Dominion voting systems would have accepted that deal. $787 million remains a lot of money. And I understand why Fox News did it as well, took our advice on the last podcast and decided to settle because it probably would have been a greater financial cost if they allowed Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and their other hosts to get on the stand and have to answer questions from the lawyers for Dominion. That would have been much more costly. Two comments on what you just said. First of all, I love that point. I totally agree around the, quote, hope that the lawsuits or lawyers or courts or the legal system would help resolve a political problem. Dividing the country and undermining democracy covers all sorts of areas, but we're approaching it at the heart that is a political problem. It's the core reason why we do this podcast, that there are all sorts of issues that have financial components and there are all sorts of ways to analyze financial components. They might have legal aspects or components and people analyze those. But we're talking about the political aspects. And yes, if you want to support democracy at its heart, that's going to be done through the polls. I mean, we've all seen, you remember how the Mueller investigation, you remember how effective that was at saving democracy, right? Trump wasn't able to do anything after you know Mueller put Trump in his place. And of course, I'm being facetious. It's a political problem that needs to be dealt with politically. You know, along those lines, Chris, I mean, just like we learned last summer when after 48 years, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and returned the decision about whether abortion could be legal or not back to the states. It makes you wonder over the last 48 years, did those people who supported abortion rights, did they have the opportunity over those 40 years to pass a federal law granting abortion rights to all women in this country? And you have to imagine that there were times over the last 48 years where they could have done that. They could have passed a law that the Supreme Court could not have overturned. The most recent opportunity perhaps was in early 2009 when the Democrats had 60 U.S. senators. So they had a filibuster-proof Senate at that time. And maybe had they moved on that, that abortion rights would not be the issue that it is today because they would be guaranteed and pretty much no one would be talking about this. So relying on the courts is a little bit dicey. It's something Republicans have realized over most of our lifetimes. They've been working the judges. They've been working these appointments. They've been trying to exercise their influence in the courts as much as they can. I'm not saying that this is what led to the settlement, certainly, but it is just an indication that in politics, sometimes the best answers are to let our political system deal with it instead of our legal system. On your second point that some political wire readers and others have raised as well, that now the Fox News audiences will never hear or understand what happened because Fox isn't going to report on it, et cetera. I thought it was excellent analysis from Gretchen Carlson, the former Fox News anchor who sued Fox or sued Roger Ailes, I think, personally. She ended up settling, I believe it was sexual harassment case. Anyhow, she settled, I think it was a $20 million settlement. And she made the analysis that it wouldn't have mattered if Fox had to apologize on air. 
their audience, even if they had gone on air and apologized, their audience would not have registered that the way non-Fox News audiences would have. It would have just been dismissed or looked past by that audience that it wouldn't have actually made a difference. I think she's probably right. I could see if Fox had had to apologize, and let's say it was very sincere, we said things that were false, people would say, oh, you know what? They're just saying that to get out of the case. They're just saying that because they have to. That's not really true because they're continuing to broadcast all the reasons why the election was stolen. So obviously, they're just saying that because they had to. I don't really believe it. Absolutely. I heard her say that in an interview recently, and uh, it did resonate with me just as well. I think that was really the price that Fox was unwilling to pay. I mean, I think if you look at the emails, you look at the text messages, you look at the desire and the worry about the stock price of Fox Corp, it was all dependent upon keeping this audience intact. And really, the goal is to do nothing to undermine that. And I think a public apology, an on-air apology read by Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson, or perhaps both of them would have been a uh, major problem for Fox. So that was probably what they were fighting more than anything. They did not want to do that. And that, that was probably worth hundreds of millions of dollars to Dominion just so they didn't have to do that. Last question, and it's back on the financial aspect. So you feel like, and I understand why, 787 million, big number, but that's not the route to go to make real change. At the same time, I wonder if there isn't just something maybe evolving. Washington Post has just reported that Mike Lindell's firm has been told to pay $5 million in the Prove Mike Wrong election fraud challenge, that the panel said that Robert Seidman, a computer forensics expert and 63-year-old Trump voter from Nevada, was entitled to a $5 million payout. It was a challenge where Lindell said, prove me wrong that the election was not stolen. Seidman, according to this arbiter, did prove Mike wrong, and now Mike has to pay. You have those two things. You have Dominion's ongoing cases with Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, and others. You have Smartmatic's $2.7 billion case versus Fox News. Are there potentially financial penalties to the propagation of lies that serve to divide our country? Is there maybe some momentum, some calling coming? Are we seeing the beginnings of that? Will the business model shift? Or no, the discussion model will shift. And just instead of naming Dominion and naming Smartmatic and naming specific countries, the division and the questioning of democracy will just happen more generally. So no, these financial penalties will not be sufficient to change the business model. Not entirely sure how that goes. I mean, my initial reaction to the Mike Lindell news was that is a win for our legal system. The fact that if that is the type of thing that strengthens our legal system, you know, Mike Lindell made this promise to pay someone $5 million if you could prove him wrong. And, you know, someone who was a Trump supporter, but also uh, this computer expert proved him wrong and said that his data actually not only didn't prove voter fraud, but it had no connection to the 2020 election. So it says what we all know about Mike Lindell, that most things that he says are nonsense. And the fact that he is being held accountable and needs to pay $5 million is interesting. But it does remind me of something that happened during the 2016 election. I believe it was $5 million as well, where Bill Maher, who hosts the excellent HBO show, 
I think it was $5 million. He offered $5 million for proof that one of Donald Trump's parents was not an orangutan. Maybe he was never held accountable for that because that's just a joke. But I do recall somewhere that I think Trump sued him over that. But Trump sued? <laughs> Imagine that. Donald yeah. Trump sued somebody. Yeah. You should have put that in political wire. That would have been news. The other person who's been making news, Ron DeSantis. It hasn't been good news for Ron DeSantis. Here's just a few of the headlines from Political Wire over the last days. Washington Post, DeSantis hits stumbling blocks on road to 2024. Politico, DeSantis's demands wear out GOP Florida allies. New York Times, DeSantis's electability pitch wobbles. Rolling Stone, Trump plotted for weeks to mind F DeSantis. Politics Extra. Governor DeSantis was back in D.C. on Tuesday, but failed to make a splash with the small number of House Republicans he met. Meanwhile, three more Florida House Republicans announced they are backing Donald Trump. And then there are the polls. South Carolina. Even with two South Carolinians in the race, Trump has a big lead in the Palmetto State, taking 43% in a new poll to DeSantis's 21%, Nikki Haley at 19 Tim Scott at 7 and Mike Pence at 2 New Hampshire, there was a poll there that also shows Trump beating DeSantis 2 to 1. My question to you is, what's DeSantis's status? Has he waited too long to enter this thing? So I think the best uh, two-sentence answer to that question was written by Charlie Sykes in his excellent newsletter this morning, where he asked, so how did your week go? Unless your face was being eaten by fire ants while you were fighting off a raging case of dysentery, it probably went better than the one that Ron DeSantis is having, because that really sums up Ron DeSantis's week. I mean, he headed to Washington, D.C., where he was going to court his former colleagues in anticipation of this long-awaited announcement that he would run for president, that he would challenge Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. And let's just say it did not go well. There are, I believe, 20 Republican congressmen and women from Florida whose endorsements uh, both Trump and DeSantis have been seeking. And Donald Trump unleashed this amazing slow drip of endorsements that started coming the day before DeSantis went to Washington and has continued ever since. And as of this recording, 10 of those Republican lawmakers from Florida have endorsed Donald Trump and just one has endorsed Ron DeSantis. So right in Ron DeSantis's own backyard, Trump is just killing him. It's exactly as you cited from those recent New Hampshire and South Carolina polls. It's really no contest. So in the invisible primary, that activity that takes place before the actual contests begin early next year, Donald Trump definitely has the upper hand. About the only thing that Ron DeSantis has proven is that he can raise money. But we learned this week as well that many of those Republican donors, those big money donors that DeSantis has courted over the last couple of years, many of them are now having second thoughts. Some of them have stated that they don't like what's happening in Florida as DeSantis pushes his legislature into fights with Disney, as DeSantis pushes his legislature to ban abortion at six weeks. As DeSantis pushes, you know, this don't say gay legislation in Florida, which only went through the third grade and now goes all the way through high school. All of those things are making some of these Republican donors very nervous because they don't believe that this culture war that Ron DeSantis is fighting is going to help him one bit in the general election. It may help him in a primary election, although there's no indications it's done that either. But they're convinced it's going to hurt DeSantis if he does indeed become the Republican nominee. Is this a case where Trump just remains too popular, particularly after the Alvin Bragg indictment, 
it's really those Florida representatives who are not staying with DeSantis and are openly endorsing Trump. That's really, really telling. So is it one, Trump's popularity? Is it two, what you just raised, that DeSantis is, in a sense, jumping the ultra-conservative, radical Republican shark with abortion and don't say gay and six weeks and all of that? And or is it three? And I heard Claire McCaskill, the former Missouri senator, make this point. DeSantis just looks small, that the Disney feud has made him look small and he just looks weak and tiny. And then there was the piece yesterday, I think you saw it as well in Politico, that Florida is poised to make DeSantis's travel records secret. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's use of state planes and other information about his official travel could soon be secret under a far-reaching bill that is coming while the Republican governor has been ramping up visits across the country ahead of a likely presidential campaign. The Florida Senate passed the bill by a 28 to 12 vote, with Republicans using their supermajority to pass the measure, since the Florida Constitution requires exemptions to the state's public records law to clear a required two-thirds threshold. The legislation heads next to the Florida House, where lawmakers are also expected to pass it. Said Senate President Kathleen Pasadomo, a Republican from Naples, quote, bad actors can find out a lot. I think it's perfectly appropriate. Here we have a young governor who has young children, a young family. God forbid something would happen because of information that is out there. So she's just looking out for the kids. That's why she wants to keep the travel records secret. There's nothing else going on there. Does DeSantis just look small? I find it funny that you actually use that word small because of all the nicknames Donald Trump was reportedly considering for Ron DeSantis, he hasn't really settled on any. He's toyed with the idea of calling him Ron DeSanctimonious. He's toyed with the idea of calling him Meatball Ron. The one I liked the best was Tiny D. And I think that maybe that will be dusted off because Ron DeSantis does look small and he does look weak. Benji Sarlin, who writes for Semaphore, had a really great observation about the secret of Donald Trump's rhetoric, which is what Trump really does, because we all know he watches TV more than any human being around. He tunes into Fox News. He tunes into Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity. He sees what is being said. He sees what the punditry is, and he simply repeats it. And what's happening right now is the pundits are now talking about Ron DeSantis having a terrible week, about Ron DeSantis being small, about Ron DeSantis being petty. And it really just feeds into what Trump is saying and will be saying and will be repeating time after time. So I think it's extremely effective in a Republican primary because what's happening right now is this storyline of this week is literally just emphasizing everything Donald Trump is saying and will be saying about Ron DeSantis. Let's go to the mailbag. We got a terrific note from Alex L, who reached out to you through your website. I know that there's been a lot of discussion about how difficult the Senate map is for Democrats in 2024. While I'm glad that Senators Brown and Tester are running for re-election, I'm afraid that Democrats will be playing too much defense and not a lot of offense. Insurrectionist Senators Cruz, Hawley, and Scott are up for re-election in 2024. While Texas, Missouri, and Florida are all red, they have had competitive down-ballot races as recently as 2018. I know that the Democrats aren't favored to pick up any of these states, but why not try to run the best candidates and at least make the insurrectionists sweat in order to win re-election? I think that the Democrats are more likely to flip one or more of these states than Joe Manchin is to win re-election, assuming he doesn't retire. Thanks, Alex. Tegan, what do you say to Alex? 
I think that's an excellent point. I, I really do. And I agree with him entirely about Joe Manchin. I mean, when if you look at the polls that are coming out, approval rates of Joe Manchin versus Governor Jim Justice, who is rumored to be announcing any day that he will make a run for the U.S. Senate, Jim Justice is way more popular than Joe Manchin among Democrats. Jim Justice is a very popular politician in West Virginia. He has eyed the Senate seat, and he would love nothing more than to take out Joe Manchin. You know who else wants to take out Joe Manchin? The entire Republican Senate caucus. Mitch McConnell is backing Jim Justice and doing everything he can to urge him into the race. And if that's the case, that is one flip that will almost certainly happen at that point. And it's not even clear that Joe Manchin's going to run for re-election yet. So let's just take West Virginia off the table. If so, then at best, the Democrats, if they hold their existing incumbents, and they've got some good news, you know, in the fact that Sherrod Brown is running again in Ohio and John Tester is running again in Montana and Bob Casey's running again in Pennsylvania. That's all good news for Democrats, but those are still very tough seats. If they want to eke out a majority, it's not just 50 seats because assuming that Joe Biden can win re-election and that they also have the vice president to break ties, they're going to need to wage battles in some of these other states. So I would look to the lessons that we saw in 2018 where Laura Kelly became governor of Kansas in a state that nobody thought Democrats could win. She was helped by the fact that Republicans nominated Chris Kobach, who is a very flawed candidate in so many ways. But then she was helped to re-election in 2022 by leveraging the abortion issue. And the abortion issue is going to be very prevalent in the 2024 elections. Republicans don't want it to be. You can see they're doing everything they can to not talk about it. And Democrats should do the opposite. They should do everything they can to make this election about abortion, because what we've seen pretty consistently since last summer when the Supreme Court made that decision overturning Roe v. Wade is that abortion is a very powerful issue for Democrats. The majority of Americans want it kept legal. If Democrats can make any of these other Senate races about the issue of abortion, and if Republicans nominate some flawed candidates, which they have been known to do over the last few years, then I think Democrats have a real shot at picking off a seat that nobody expects. So I think it makes a ton of sense to wage fights in all states. You know, that was the Howard Dean strategy. Don't concede any site, always have somebody running. And, you know, I think it makes sense because you can't win with no one, but you can win with someone. And to directly answer Alex's question, if you had to choose among really focusing on Texas, Missouri, or Florida, Cruz, Holly, or Rick Scott, where would you focus? There's a reason why I didn't directly answer that question, because that's not the easiest choice right there. So that's why I've got Alex's back here. Florida is tough, but Rick Scott is a very flawed candidate, as we've seen. And he's pretty much at war with his own party, particularly with Mitch McConnell. So maybe he's not going to get the same type of support that he would otherwise get. Ted Cruz in Texas, you know, we keep hearing about Texas, you know, possibly going blue or trending blue. I'll believe it when I see it, I guess. And in a presidential election year, I think that's going to be harder than ever to say. And then Missouri, I think Missouri at one point years ago, I mean, we know you just mentioned Claire McCaskill, Democrat, was a senator from Missouri up until recently. But it sure seems like Missouri has also trended red as well. It's really hard to try to choose which of those states might be the state where Democrats could flip a seat, but they've got to try. And you never know what happens. Years ago, when the senator from New York, Kirsten Gillibrand, when she was uh, running for the House for the very first time, 
she was trying to raise money in New York City, and she was running against a guy named John Sweeney, who was an incumbent Republican in the House. He'd only won his races by nine or 10 points in the past. It looked like there was no way that she could possibly pick him off. And then about 10 days, two weeks before the election, a 911 call was released where he was reportedly chasing his wife around their home with a hammer trying to kill her. Let's just say that changed the election outcome. And Gillibrand, she won that seat by about nine percentage points. So you never know what happens in politics. You never know what twists and turns come. You can't predict how these things are going to work out. So it's always better to have someone there running instead of nobody there running. You know, I'll bring up Laura Kelly again in Kansas. No one gave her a shot back in 2018 to win that seat. And yet she did. And she did with a little bit of help from Republicans. But the Republicans that Alex mentions in his email, they're all flawed. Rick Scott's flawed. Ted Cruz is flawed. Josh Hawley's flawed. So if all of a sudden we find out new news about them, if we find out Josh Hawley was actually more actively involved in inciting an insurrection instead of just a photo of him raising his fist before rioters and that he had done something else, you know, that's just speculating here, but that's the type of thing that could potentially turn a race. So you never know what's going to happen. And the X factor that you mentioned before, abortion rulings and putting that on ballots and to the extent that states put referenda around access to abortion and the abortion pills, we're already seeing that effect in various races and what that's doing in terms of bringing people out to vote. So I agree. You never know. And there's a huge X factor. You know what I do know, Tegan? Tell me, Chris. It's time for me to go check the mailbag so we have questions for next week. Very good. Thanks. Talk to you soon, Chris. 